Philippians chapter 4, the sermon text for this morning. Philippians chapter 4. It's always a great blessing to go through a book of the Bible and to walk through it together as a congregation to see it sort of unfold in its context. And it is striking how often the next passage seems to coincide with many of the experiences a church finds itself going through. Today, we turn to Philippians chapter 4, verses 4 through 7. This is God's holy an inspired word, uh, without error, perfect to accomplish his purposes. He gives it to his people for our good. Give your attention to its reading. When we finish reading the passage, I'll say this is the word of the Lord. Please respond with thanks be to God. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Some people may think that this passage or passages like it that come up in Scripture teach that uh, Christians are to sort of uh, be the kind of people that float through life without a care in the world. The ancient philosophers, particularly those who were called Stoics, they said if you want to sort of get rid of all the worry and care, you need to just kind of Detach yourself from everything. It's actually what Buddhism teaches as well. Stop desiring, stop, stop loving, stop caring, and then you achieve this state of nirvana. There's that, that song, Don't Worry, Be Happy. And sometimes people think that that's sort of the, the, the way that Christians are called to walk through this life, to sort of float through life without a care in the world. Walking through Philippians in the way that, that we have it shows us that we, we cannot see that as Paul's meaning here. That's impossible that that's what Paul is calling us, just to sort of float through life, don't care about anything, don't be concerned about it, everything, and always have this kind of uh, superficial happiness. Paul is imprisoned as he writes this letter. He's immensely concerned about the piety and the virtue that the church, that he calls the church of Philippi to. He's concerned that they would preserve their faith in the true gospel. Remember in in chapter 3, he says, watch out. Watch out for these these false teachers that might come in and and try to to mess up your understanding of the gospel. What what is that if it's not concern and worry? He's deeply uh, concerned about the ongoing spread of the gospel throughout the known world. He's deeply concerned about the unity that the believers are called to have. We think even just of last week's passage where he's calling Euodia and Syntyche to, to reconcile for the good of the church. I want to share this morning that we are not called... As the church, as God's people, we're not called to a a superficial 
feeling of happiness. Feelings and emotions are, are good things. God has created them. But what we're called to is, is something that transcends how we may feel in any particular time. We're called to a state of the soul, a disposition that I want to call unshakable joy. Unshakable joy. And our life-transforming reality this morning is this. Unshakable joy is rooted in Christ. It's generous because of the Lord's nearness. And it is bathed in thankful prayer. Unshakable joy is rooted in Christ. It is generous because of the Lord's nearness. nearness, And it is bathed in thankful prayer. We go into passages like this and and, and some people who may be more given to anxiety than others and may even struggle with what we might call clinical anxiety think that uh, a passage like this is sort of only addressing them and they can feel a bit of admonition and rebuke singled out by saying, well, I'm I'm more given to this, uh, what we might call anxiety or clinical anxiety, so I, I feel like... I'm being rebuked myself and no one else. But it's important to see Paul's corporate outlook here. He knows the situation of the church in Philippi. He knows what they're going through. He calls them as one people to shed this kind of worry that we're going to unpack as we look to God's word. All of us are tempted towards... uh, having our a disposition of anxiety, fear, and worry about particular things. This is addressing all of us and not just some. And we must also believe that by the, the power of the Spirit working in us, the kind of unshakable joy to which we are called is possible in this life. It may be beyond our own ability to achieve it. We can't do it on our own. We need the grace of God working in us. But we're commanded to it because with God's help, we can see this kind of unshakable joy in our lives. So the apostle says, rejoice in the Lord. I will say it again, rejoice. Why does he repeat that? It's because it's for emphasis, isn't it? He's emphasizing the importance of this command. First, we need to understand what joy is. As I've kind of alluded to, most of the time, we associate joy with happiness, kind of a, a feeling of happiness, but it's deeper than that, and it must be deeper than that. The apostle says, rejoice at all times, rejoice always. So it has to be something that goes deeper than feelings. It has to be something that can endure through various circumstances, And experiences. Happiness is an emotion, and that is not a bad thing. That's not what we're saying. But emotions change, and they come and they go. It would be impossible to command someone, you must always feel this way or that way. You must always feel way. Here's how one pastor puts it in regards to rejoicing He says, To rejoice is to treasure a thing to assess its value to you, to reflect on its beauty and importance until your heart rests in it and tastes the sweetness of it. Rejoicing is a way of praising God until the heart is sweetened and rested, until it relaxes its grip on anything else it thinks it needs. So it's a a state of the soul, a disposition of the heart that endures through various Emotions. Joy may be connected to feeling an emotion. I think it's, it's safe to say that. 
It will play into the ways that we feel, but it must be deeper. Unshakable joy can be experienced when the emotions of sorrow or sadness seem overwhelming. We can still have unshakable joy. One picture that we might use for this is the picture of family love. When a wife is frustrated with her husband, does she stop loving him? Hopefully not, right? A true love would go deeper than that. If a, if a parent is training a child and not getting very far and it's very frustrating and maybe the parent has sort of had enough, does the parent stop loving the child? No. See, love goes deeper than how you feel. The same is for our joy. And we see here that it's rooted in Jesus Christ. Rejoice in the Lord. Christian joy is not dependent upon circumstances because it is rooted in a treasure that outweighs each and every circumstance. A treasure that is more valuable than the sorrow that you're feeling relative to what you're going through. One Puritan puts it this way. We are commanded to believe in Christ's daylight at midnight. We're commanded to believe and to hold on to Christ's daylight at midnight. Yes, this world does bring midnights our way. But through it all, we are called to unshakable joy. And how do we do it? Well, as we, we, we saw that, that one quote that I shared with you, it's about rejoicing. It's about assessing a value of a thing. And so if unshakable, biblical, gospel-rooted joy is to be unshakable, it needs to be rooted in Christ and it needs to see and savor the beauty of Christ. That's what we're called to do as Christians. That's what we're doing when we come together as, wor- as worshipers. We are seeing and savoring the beauty of the salvation that we have in Christ. Samuel Rutherford, a pastor who spent much of his life and ministry imprisoned, and I share a lot of his quotes with you all, he said this, I want nothing but a further revelation of the beauty of the Son of God. I want to know him more. I want to see his beauty more. I want to fill myself with beholding his beauty, something else that he said, seeing and savoring the beauty of Christ. We're seeing and savoring his victory. No matter the the, the circumstances of our lives, the victory of Christ never changes. It never changes. The Psalms are filled with this kind of of language. I will rejoice and I will be glad in your steadfast love because you have seen my affliction and you know the distress of my soul. Psalm 27, an army may encamp against me, but my heart will not fear. War is rising against me, but I will be confident. Why? For this God will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. This God has promised that I will dwell in his house all the days of my life. Jesus said, in this world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. It's a corporate command, isn't it? All of you, all of God's people together, you are to rejoice. In other words, we're to put it in our minds and our hearts that the the, the place we all are called to get to is a, a, a disposition of the soul of unshakable joy. And you think about in chapter 3 where Paul says, you're all running this race of life in Christ together. And your goal is that you all get to the finish line together. It's not about who gets there first. It's about getting there together. 
The same is true for this. We're living in Christ together by the power of the Spirit that we would all have this kind of joy. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Or chapter 1, sorry, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all of our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. When you see and you savor the beauty of Christ, you are sharing in God's comfort. God says, now go forth with the comfort I have given to you and comfort the people of God around you. That need it. Unshakable joy is rooted in Christ. Unshakable joy is generous because of the Lord's nearness. Here's kind of the main principle of this second point a joyful heart is a reasonable and a gentle heart because generosity abounds in the midst of glorious hope. I'll unpack that. But generosity abounds in the midst of glorious hope. Uh, Here we we read, uh, let your gentleness or your reasonableness be known to everyone. So this is a command that it, it is to let this kind of characteristic, this virtue, be known not only amongst the people of God, but in the world altogether, the people of God are to be known by this virtue of gentleness or reasonableness. What is it? If you look outside of scripture to how this word is used, most often in the Greco-Roman world, what it was describing is someone from a higher social position that was being reasonable or generous to someone of a lower social position. So for instance, uh, one of the, the, the main currencies in that day was work. If you couldn't pay off your debts, often you had to go into indentured servitude. So if someone couldn't pay off a debt, they entered into to servanthood or slavery to someone else in order to work off their debt. And someone who is reasonable would be someone who would say, okay, uh, this person was supposed to work for me for four years, we'll say. And three and a half years in, he might say, you know what, I'm doing fine. I, I've seen that you've worked well for me. I'm going to let you Uh, I'm going to release you of your debt six months early. That's a a reasonable kind of person. It's the kind of virtue that allows us to build a healthy and a functioning society. But what's so shocking about what Paul says is he's talking to the people of God, uh, many of whom have accepted a lower social status in order to be known as a Christian. They are facing various circumstances where they're going to suffer at the hands of the Roman Empire or anyone else. And he's commanding them as these people who are suffering at the hands of others, you are to be generous and reasonable in these ways. It's really a shocking command if you think about it in that way. Paul says in Philippians 1, you have been called in Christ not only to believe in him, but to suffer for his sake. This was a church that was a suffering church. In other words, what the apostle is calling them to do and calling us to do, he's saying when you suffer at the hands of others, your primary concern is not to be that you are obsessed with kind of balancing the scales of justice as it relates to your own life. Right? Just as that generous person would release someone uh, early because they're being reasonable and generous. When you suffer at the hands of others, 
you are not to be so obsessed with balancing the scales that you can think of nothing else. Now, important to remind ourselves of a couple things. This does not mean that uh, Christians are to be people who reject the means of maintaining justice that God has set up in the world. State, government, doling out justice and punishment. It's not about that. This is addressing the condition of our hearts. Justice may be doled out more or less depending on what society a given Christian lives in. We've been blessed uh, to live in a society built on Judeo-Christian values that prizes justice, and that's a wonderful blessing. What it's addressing is a condition of the heart, as we read this morning. Beloved, don't avenge yourselves. Don't be so obsessed that if someone wrongs you, you need to tip the scales back in your favor. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. This is how God's people are to be known in the world. Maybe some of you saw it several weeks ago. There was a a police officer who was in trouble. She had entered into an apartment that she thought was her own. It wasn't her own. Someone was there. She discharged a weapon. The person who was there in his own apartment, he ended up dying. And so this police officer was put on trial, and afterwards, at the sentencing, there was this stunning scene. The younger brother of the man who was killed was looking at the police officer, saying, look, I know, I know you need to go to jail, but I, don't, I wouldn't even want you to go to jail. I want you to, to know the forgiveness that I have known in Christ. I want you to give your life to Jesus Christ, and I just want you to know that I forgive you. It's a stunning scene of radical forgiveness, the very kind of generosity to which we are being called in this passage. And over the next couple of days, there were various things being written. I was kind of following this story, and various things were being written. Some people were saying, well, uh, you know, we, we don't want to get too supportive of this kind of thing because uh, the skin color of the younger brother of the man who was killed, and the skin color of the police officer, there are too many kind of social difficulties to say that this should be something that we should see uh, over and over again. You got to be careful to, to generously give forgiveness if you're of this skin color to people of that skin color. Unbelievably awful way of viewing that situation. I was rejoicing in how this young man did exactly what he was called to do. To forgive as he had been forgiven. I wrote down some thoughts as that was all unfolding and I wrote this. Living in the freedom of forgiveness is to say that one is not going to be held by the evil actions of others. It looks into one's own heart to see that in the face of our own forsaking of God, he shed his grace on us. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The gospel frees us to live without resentment. It forces us to view ourselves as culprits rather than victims, as those who have been freed from a just indictment. We receive a greater hope and a greater freedom in Christ than we'll ever have in a world that is touched by sin and the curse. Yet we taste that freedom and joy now by the Spirit, and we search for ways to show that forth in our lives, just as we've been commanded to do by God. Let your reasonableness be known to all. Why? Because the Lord is near. The Lord is near. Here we see that there is really a double meaning of the Lord's nearness. The first is the day of the Lord is near. 
The day of your vindication, the day of our freedom from sin and death and the curse, the day where God's people will dwell with their God in the freedom of righteousness and life, that day is soon. That day will come quickly. But there's also a meaning here that even though the day of the Lord is near, the Lord is also near to us uh, wherever we go and whatever we're going through. Psalm 34, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. When Jesus was ascending on high, what did he say? He said, lo, I am with you always, even till the end of the age. We can be generous in spirit, reasonable in the way that we are commanded to, because the nearness of eternal life makes any road bearable, and Christ's presence with us even now fills us with joy and comfort and solace, for he is with us wherever we go. Sam Rutherford says once again, we have two shallow brooks, two shallow creeks to pass through sickness and death. But we also have a promise that Christ will do more than meet you. He shall come himself and go with you, foot for foot, and even bear you in his arms. Not only is Christ near, the day of the Lord is near, but he is with us wherever we go and he walks with us. Unshakable joy finally is bathed in thankful prayer. It's bathed in thankful prayer. Thankful prayer is the antidote to anxiety, the kind of anxiety that the apostle is addressing here. It's not so much a timeless generality as it is he's calling the church, knowing what they're going through. They're facing various things, various dangers about their earthly welfare. They're facing a possibility of suffering. All of these things are going to be a source of great worry. But... He says, don't be anxious about any of the things that you're facing. It's applicable to us in in much the same way because we tend to get bogged down with the very same things. The apostle is echoing the Savior uh, in a way here, isn't he? Matthew chapter 6, Jesus said, Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. So do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. In other words, be very concerned about the things that have come your way in the present moment. And be concerned about the proper things, righteousness, the kingdom of God, what God calls you to do. Have great concern about those things, but don't be concerned about about what God has promised to give you until your dying breath. He knows the span of our life. He knows exactly what we need, and he has promised to give us exactly what we need to get us to that point. God is sovereign. He is also good. One of the great blessings of this passage, it says, do not feel this way, do not be overcome with anxiety, but do something, a tangible thing that we can do as an antidote to anxiety. Don't be anxious, but pray. Don't be anxious, but pray. We are to make a great effort to maintain a healthy prayer life. And that does not come naturally or easily. 
We need to order our lives that we would pray and even fight that we would pray more. One Puritan put it this way, there are times when I would rather die than pray. There are times when my heart feels that way as well. But never once, never once have I given myself to the blessing of prayer and come away disappointed that I did. Never once. One thing that we can't miss in this passage is the massive importance that is placed upon our prayer lives, privately and corporately. We spend a lot of time in our worship services praying because we dare not reject this practice and we want to communicate the importance of this practice in all of our lives, what Calvin called the chief exercise of faith. To those who have faith in Christ, the chief exercise of what you can do is pray to God. And it's not so much what you pray as it is how you pray. So often we can uh, can be so worried about what we're praying. Are we having the proper frame of mind in our prayers that we're commanded to have? We learn that Jesus Christ, in his intercession for God's people, is interceding for us, asking the Father to give us exactly what we need. We're going to think about that a little bit more tonight. Jesus is the one who pleads for us at the throne. He knows what we need more than we do. Yes, bring your petitions to God, but make sure that your prayers are sweetened with what? Thankfulness. Thankfulness. Thankfulness is what mitigates against idolatry. A thankful heart is a heart that will not be seeking other things to worship other than the God who supplies all of your needs. In order to be thankful, you need to reflect back on the kindnesses God has shown you. In order to be thankful, you need to remember what he has done. You need to recount what he has done for you in getting you to where you are. Bathe your life in thankful prayer. And watch, unshakable joy come forth. And then also watch, what? The peace of God. The peace of God is given uh, through this medium. It guards your heart and it guards your joy and it makes it unshakable. To pray with thankfulness, to pray with thankful heart yields this wonderful blessing of the peace of God that transcends human understanding and it does so in two ways. It transcends all human understanding in two ways. First, it's beyond our ability to comprehend. To those who know the peace of God, who have known that, there's really no way to adequately explain it. Particularly those who are experiencing that peace of God in the midst of trying circumstances. How can you explain to people that your heart is at peace? It's beyond our ability to comprehend. And secondly, it transcends all human understanding because it's a better answer to the anxieties and worries of this life that bog us down than anything that we could come up with on our own. God says, here's this blessing. In the midst of anxiety, in the midst of worry, pray and my peace will be given to you and it will transcend all human understanding. There may be all kinds of answers that we seek apart from that blessing. None of them are going to give us the wholeness, the healing, the grace that we find in the peace of God that he gives to us by his spirit. So there's no better answer to the worries that bog us down than to combat them by prayer and to watch as the peace of God is given to us from the Father in the Son by the power of the Spirit. That is the great hope. That is the great blessing. That can be ours in Christ. Unshakable joy. It's rooted in Christ. It's generous because of the Lord's nearness. And it is bathed in thankful prayer. Let's pray.
Dear Heavenly Father, you call us to the battle, the battlefields. And we sometimes shake and tremble at the things we may find there. But may we be clothed in the armor of God. And may we go to these blessings you have given to us. The, the, the wonderful blessing of prayer. What a great importance you have placed upon it for us. May we heed your word here. And may you, by your grace, give us unshakable joy that's rooted in Christ and the gospel uh, that sees all that you are doing and yet trusts you at all times. And may your peace guard our hearts and our minds. Through Christ our Lord. Amen.